You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Hello, everybody. We're back. It's the Beltway Briefing, and we've got a great lineup for you this week. Lots to talk about with the elections. Lots to maybe talk about with Build Back Better. Towner, we'll see. But we've got Mark and Howard and Towner and then some special guests back again this week. Julia Hammond and Jerry Kilgore from our Richmond, Virginia office because there was kind of an important election this week in Virginia. And then Tristan Bro, our colleague with Roots in Virginia Politics, um, who works with us in the Washington office, is on as well. And let's start, uh, Jerry, with you and, and tell us what happened. You were right. You came on last week and, and, and correctly predicted the outcome. Uh, I won't tease Tristan too much about telling me that Terry McAuliffe was going to win earlier in the day on Tuesday, but Jerry, what, what happened? Tell us what went down in, in Virginia, Virginia in in the Commonwealth. Virginia is still a purple state and, and Republicans can still win in Virginia if the message is right. And I think with Biden's unpopularity in Virginia, coupled with uh, Terry McAuliffe's mistake ridden campaign Republicans had a shot and they had an opening and they seized on it. They went to central casting, I would submit, to find a candidate for governor. And they found Glenn Youngkin. And all of a sudden, he could self-fund a campaign if he needed to. And he went out and convinced voters all across Virginia that he was the right choice. You know, rural voters showed up in greater percentages than they did for Donald Trump, which is a shock around the nation, around the state. And suburban voters came back to the Republican Party, not so much that they the Republicans won the suburbs in Northern Virginia, but they cut into the numbers so much in Northern Virginia that it became impossible for the Democrats to overcome the rural vote on election night. Jerry, one thing that... Can I, one thing I saw is that McAuliffe actually got more votes in a loss than Northam did last time in a win. And which, which I reminded the Republicans on election night, why are we opposing, uh, uh, why do we oppose, uh, you know, views to expand the, the vote because we won playing by the rules the Democrats put in place. We won mm-hmm. with uh, over 3 million voters in a statewide election, which is unheard of in the Commonwealth. That was a great turnout. A great number of voters showed up. This Republicans seized on early voting, used those rules to turn out their votes in, in uh, so the suburbs. And then the election day vote really turned out in a surprising fashion in the rural areas. And that's in large part due to the Democrats just ignored the rural part of the state. I think in the future, if the Democrats want to win statewide in Virginia, and they are still, I would say they are still the favored to win statewide in every statewide race in Virginia, but they can't ignore an entire area of the state from Richmond to 
the Cumberland Gap, you can't ignore that area, not advertise, not go there, and not try to get your vote. Because in, in, in certain rural counties, there's a, a defined Rep Democrat vote, but it was maybe a fourth of what it used to be uh, when you look at those rural numbers. In my county alone that I grew up in, I, Terry McAuliffe got less than 500 votes in a in a county that votes 7,000 people. You can't you can't survive with those numbers in like 30 counties in the West and right. and hope uh, Fairfax County somehow. Julia, jump in. So I'll put some stats behind um, what Jerry was talking about because it was much more than just rural Virginia. Of the 133 jurisdictions in the Commonwealth. 132 of them had Republican gains, including the city of Petersburg, the city of Richmond, only Emporia City on the North Carolina border had Democratic gains. So even in blue, bright blue parts of the Commonwealth, historical Democratic um, strongholds had Republican gains. Um, we're a weird state, right? We have these off-off year elections, just us in New Jersey with the statewide. We had a 15% increase in voter turnout from the last off-off year election we had. And these numbers were huge. You're right, Terry McAuliffe lost by more than Northam won by. And it, a lot of it had to do with early voting. Um, I agree with Jerry that I don't know why Republicans had been so adverse to it because when we figured out how to message on it, they did pretty well, in particular in Jerry's um, area, the, the Commonwealth Southwest well, and Southside. We, we know why the Republicans writ large are opposed to early voting it's because trump told them to be so that's why but um getting back to virginia sorry i had to say it no i, I, I threw everybody for a week i think we mistake though all republicans and trump republicans with virginia republicans trump never came to the commonwealth right um we actually didn't really have any surrogates um and do any campaigning for Glenn Youngkin. He did it on his own. He may have had some events for fundraising, which again, because he could self-fund so much of it, he didn't have to spend as much time as Terry McAuliffe and the other statewide candidates did. But we, I think it was also the ticket. I mean, it is the most diverse statewide ticket. I mean, we have now Glenn Youngkin at governor, but we can't forget and win some Sears for lieutenant governor. The first uh, black woman to win statewide. She's the first naturalized citizen to win statewide. And Jason Miaris, the first Latino to win statewide office in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And they they all, they won, they helped bring. Republicans made huge gains with the Hispanic vote this year. The city of Manassas Park, which is the most Hispanic city in the Commonwealth of Virginia, had double-digit increases for Republicans. I mean, it was, it was, there was a lot going on, not just early yeah. voting and not just a top of the ticket. Sure. Yeah, it was decisive. I mean, they turned out the vote. And they flipped the House. Seven seat pickup in the House of Delegates. Last Pretty week, I guess maybe a tie. I did not see, in particular, two of the seats we won, nobody thought was going to happen. With uh, La Cherie Sayard, who has part of uh, the city of Petersburg, um, Tristan's buddy, La Charisse, uh, losing her seat, and then Martha Mugler down in Hampton Roads. That yeah, was not on any of my lists. Tristan, jump in. You know, I, I agree. You know, I agree with Jerry and, and Julia here. Um, you know, I was, first of all, I have to admit, yes, I was wrong. Uh, I originally had, uh, 
I originally had uh, Terry McCullough winning by. Don't two. worry, you have company on this podcast. I, I was at, I had we'll get to by, that. But winning by two points, uh, just because everything looked like it was going to uh, to barely swing our way. But I mean, I think I think we have to look at you know where um, where the, where Republicans went right and where Democrats went wrong. Um, you know, there was there there was this belief that. Uh, Republicans made this about race and critical race theory and, you know, schools, you know, the, yes, to a certain extent, but also they, they really just honed in on an individual person, like an individual family of like, you want to go to work, you want to be healthy, you want your kid to go to school to get a certain training. They ran those, that straight campaign from start to finish. Democrats had a hard time convincing, particularly people of color, of why this race is important. <laughs> a lot of folks in my old neck of the woods in Norfolk, Glenn Youngkin got 30% of the vote in Norfolk, which is a high person of color territory. Glenn Youngkin got 30% of the vote in Portsmouth, which is an even higher person of color area. And so the issue was that, I mean, it's turnout. You know, there, there was no there was no energy within the particularly the African-American community to get out and vote for the former governor um, because there's a lot there was a lot of unanswered questions. There was a lot of um, unanswered favors or at least offers that were made in, in the last administration. And so the question was, what do we have to gain to flip over uh, former President Trump's uh, <laughs> question to African-Americans? What do you have to lose? What do we have to gain? And the energy wasn't from the White House of like, this is why we're doing it. You know, there's a lot of skepticism in the black community about what the president's doing and or what he promised to do by now and is not doing. And so there was no energy whatsoever in those particular areas. And the Republicans were united of like, we have to get out to vote. We have to make sure we get our candidate in. And by any means necessary, even using, as Juliana Jerry has said, even using early voting, which, which has typically given to Democrats. I was looking at the election um, you know, on the night of and like certain, you know, the, the stats was coming in of early voting. I'm like, Glenn Youngkin is rising. Like, how how is that possible? So do you but guys it, think it, that Youngkin won or McAuliffe lost? I think a combination. Yes. I think it's a combination. Youngkin is a great candidate and he was he was not Trump like, but Terry McAuliffe never retracted his parents don't have a say in education and that just I think that just killed him in the suburbs and, yeah. and I don't know why he didn't <laughs> so Towner is this now the blueprint for Republican campaigns across the country Absolutely. Absolutely. I talked to three people today who are Republican campaign operatives all of whom told me this is how you do it. This is how you keep Trump at an arm's length and win on the message. Um, I actually have a, if Howard, if you'll indulge me, I have a question uh, for our expert panel uh, of Virginia, because I live in, in D.C. I see the commercials. I know how upset uh, my friends who live in Northern Virginia, a Democratic bastion, have been over public schools. And specifically in the spring of this year, their kids were not going to school. Uh, not going to public school. And, you know, you could sort of see some of this even building, uh, you know, since the beginning of 2021, when kids were out of school in other school districts in D.C., my daughter was going back to school in Maryland and in Southern and Western Virginia. Kids were going back to school. And so um, my, my question is, you know, 
to the extent that you could have looked in that crystal ball. If Fairfax and Loudoun and Arlington and Alexandria school public schools had been open on January 1, 2021, would Terry McAuliffe be governor right now? Probably so. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I think, I, hold on, hold on. Our ivory tower correspondent has something to say. I have something to say. I'd like to uh, be heard. First and foremost, Howard, I cannot believe that you didn't open with the most important thing that happened on Tuesday night, namely the Atlanta Braves winning the World Series on the road and keeping the National League where it belongs as the only pure baseball league in the country. But apart from that, I think what Towner's asking has a real uh, a, a real relevance beyond Virginia. I, I am in no position to disagree with anything that Jerry and Julia and Tristan said. It, it all sounds right to me, and they, they know far better than I. But Towner's question is very astute, I think. Because I think what happened to a degree in Virginia, what happened to a degree in New Jersey, what happened to a degree on Long Island, is people are mad. People are mad. People are mad about COVID. They thought it was going to go away. It sort of did, but not really. And it is still an issue in the schools. And they are blaming Joe Biden and blaming the Democrats. And I think that your question, Towner, and Jerry's answer that, yeah, Terry McAuliffe would probably be the governor, is something that explains what happened in New Jersey to a degree and and elsewhere. People are mad. They're mad that Joe Biden hasn't made COVID go away. They're mad that the supply chain is broken and you can't get a dishwasher. They're mad that inflation is going the wrong way and and not as a transitory matter. And Democrats got punished everywhere that were in power. And and Mark, are they mad that while all this stuff is going on, the Democrats are sitting here in Washington fighting with one another over something it may parts of it may be popular, parts of it may not be popular, but nobody knows what the heck it is. All they know is that the Democrats are fighting while the world is falling apart. Agreed. Agreed. And and as you just said, Howard, uh, it's not only the fighting, it's the absolute absence of any message whatsoever. This, this is the unmessaged administration. It isn't even the wrong message like Terry McAuliffe saying something stupid about parents in schools, or by the way, Phil Murphy saying something stupid about New Jersey and taxes. I defy anyone, supporter or opponent, I defy anyone to tell me what the message is. It, I mean, to me, Mark, New Jersey... The, we didn't know for 24 hours whether yeah. Phil Murphy was going to be reelected or this no name, you know, Republican opponent was going to yeah. was going to win. By the way, I'd like Howard. to point out, I'd like to drop a footnote that at the end of the day, we're talking about two races for governor between four middle aged rich guys. Well, um, I, I, I want to join your footnote and, and just say a couple of 
things. Uh, yes, it was, both elections were between middle-aged, rich, white guys. So that tells you something, and, and it's not something good about what happened Tuesday night. Also, both elections were close. New Jersey shouldn't have been. Well, that's we the thought. point. I but think New Jersey was more significant because that, that's where I'm going. Virginia yeah. being close was not a surprise. I was wrong. Tristan and I were wrong. We thought it would be really close, but our guy would win. It turned out it was really close, and the other guy won. But New Jersey is a whole different kettle of fish. It wasn't supposed to be a, a one-point election, although. Uh, there, too, you had some of the same phenomena as Jerry and, and Julie and Tristan were talking about. The suburbs went back to the Republican Party, and that that's what tightened it as it did. Look, I, but I in wonder... his heart of hearts, Howard, in his heart of hearts, Phil Murphy's OK today because he won. And in a month, no one's going to remember. Yeah, the he's the governor. He's the governor, and Steve Sweeney is not the Senate president. Right, but I think for in terms of what we're trying to do here, what are the takeaways? And um, he's the governor, and that's all that matters for New Jersey. But for the country, for the to the extent that these two elections and beyond were bellwethers, um, I yeah. you know. I think it's very important. It portends, Tuesday night portends very poorly (laughs) for the midterms for Democrats. But part of it is just history. Part of it is just the wheel keeps turning and the cycle always ends this way. Ronald Reagan was the last president who did not lose Virginia and New Jersey in the election the year after his so so to that point, Jerry, is this is this just anti-incumbency at the end of the day? Virginia is, for the most part, an anti-incumbency state. I mean, mm-hmm. Terry McAuliffe is the only governor for the past like nine that has won with a Democrat a president of his own party in the White House. The only one. Every other one has been the has one governor opposite the president from the White House. And that's just a crazy historical lesson for Virginia. Uh, You enter the race knowing that it's going to be competitive if you're the race opposite the president. Well, and I think that was part of his problem, too, though, because he had been governor and he kept talking about, well, I'm going to do all these things. And a lot of people were asking, why the heck didn't you do them last time? Because for his last two years, he did have Democrats in charge. Um, of both the House and the Senate. So unfortunately, he was trying to be new and fresh and run on a record that was trying it was starting to look like he hadn't gotten much had, had not accomplished much. Yeah, he didn't. I mean, there was, there was a very shaky ground of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of constituencies who would typically vote Democrat, who are like, you you made these same promises when you were the, the governor the first time and you didn't do it. So why why would I believe you to do to, to actually do it this time if I give you a second run of it? As a matter of fact, uh, and they went deeper of we even gave it to your lieutenant governor and he didn't even do it. He didn't even do it. Uh, making this, he, he made the same promise on your campaign to do the same thing. And so a lot of it was like, you know, I'm just going to sit home because it's just, it, it's not worth it. But 
but it was a bigger turnout than in 2009, which right. is which is which mm-hmm. is the point that that I was going to make to your question, Howard, is a lot of Democrats are saying, oh, my God, it's 2000 all over again. We're going to lose the House. We're going to, you know, in 2010 all over again. No, Craig Deeds was a horrible candidate, um, but he lost. <laughs> you know, but, but he lost by 350,000 votes to who was su- supposed to be the Republican nominee for president um, in a, in a mm-hmm. couple of years after that. Um, but we only lost by 75,000 votes uh, in this yeah. one. And so there's room for Democrats to make up ground here. But the question is, are, there, are they going to take notes and really make okay. the changes needed? Right. And, and, and so one of the notes... Not, can we not bury the sub-lead from Jerry's report? <laughs> which is that uh, Donald Trump had a bad night in Virginia on Tuesday uh-huh. and Donald Trump had a bad night uh, elsewhere on Tuesday. Even in New Jersey, the, the Republican candidate didn't, he didn't do as artful a job as Youngkin did of keeping a, his distance, but he tried. And I was talking uh, earlier, Howard, today to uh a, a Republican source, uh, the chair of his state party. I'm going to let him be anonymous here. But wow. that, that Mark, was you talked to a Republican? He, yeah, he's a client. I had to. Oh, okay. Um, right, right, right. Yeah, he pays me to talk to him. We also give <laughs> each other books to read. But of course, of, of course, the, the dirty secret that our audience should know is that Mark talks to Republicans all day long. But continue. I'm yeah. talking to Jerry and Julia and Towner right now. Yeah, Not look, convincing you, Howard. In, in all but seriousness, what, all what, kidding aside, we talk to everybody mm-hmm. um, inside and outside of government, which is why we're able to share our perspective. So, yep. But Go this, ahead, Mark. This guy, this this guy um, <laughs> knows a lot about Republican politics. Said that was the lead. He he said that he thought it was a very bad night for Trump. Now he is not a hardcore diehard Trumpster, uh, but but that that could turn out to be the template, as Towner was saying. And I got to tell you, even as a Democrat, Tristan, who lost just about everything in sight, uh, except, thank goodness, Phil Murphy, I I would make that trade. A bad night for Trump and a bad night for Democrats, I'd make that trade. It's a good thing for the country. And, Very good trade. And we'll see where it goes. I'm, I'm hoping we see more of it next year. So, Towner, does this mean that the Democrats in Congress should be moderating their policy message because to the extent there is a message, because it sure seems like, like you get shellacked. Um, people don't like what's coming out of DC. That's that's not the only thing that matters, but it is one element of this. What say you uh, yeah. ab- about what Pelosi and the Democrats should be doing? And and, and ta- uh, Tristan, I'd like you to jump in on this as well. What do you? What are you guys? You're you're in the halls of Congress every day. What do you think the D should be doing in terms of their policy? Yeah, I mean, it sure seems like they should be moderating their policies, um, but they're not. 
but they're not. That's the the bottom line. And, and you know, I don't envy their position. It's a it's a situation where you say, what do you do? Just do nothing uh, up until the midterms, and that's a policy you can't have because the 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 bottom line is that Democrats and independent voters are saying you've done nothing. They don't remember the American Rescue Plan from March, uh, the past related to the pandemic. They're saying you're do- you're not doing anything. You're putting some mandates on us. You know, you came out with that policy this week, but you haven't passed any of the assistance uh, that that you've been promising, that you've staked your presidency on, President Biden. You haven't done any of that. And so what they have done is charge ahead on the the Build Back Better Act, the social infrastructure bill that's $1.75 trillion or thereabouts, although we don't know what the score is, which is the current uh, issue. Um, and the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, as we as we speak today, uh, at this moment, Speaker Pelosi is trying to determine after after a vote on a motion to adjourn sat open this morning. Uh, I shouldn't even say this morning, this morning and this afternoon uh, for hours, the longest vote in the history of the House of Representatives on a motion to adjourn because uh, six moderate Democrats said, we're not voting on anything until we have a CBO score. Well, the problem is we're not going to have a CBO score, a, a total accounting of the spending in the Build Back Better Act, uh, until Thanksgiving, says the Congressional Budget <laughs> Office. So we've been at a full standstill. And right now we have Pelosi and Clyburn and Hoyer at the at the mics uh, explaining they're going to vote uh, on a on a rule on the on the procedural motion to move forward on infrastructure and on Build Back Better Act, uh, but they may not vote on either one uh, until Thanksgiving, till when they get a CBO score. Although they're hoping to expedite that for a little bit. But Howard, one more point, and I'll flip it over to Tristan. One thing they did uh, over the course of the last forty eight hours, in uh, I think exact response. Uh, to what happened in New Jersey, the the governor's election that was so close. I mean, it was he was pulling up the Democratic governor was pulling up by 16 points going into election night and squeaked it out by a percentage, uh, you know, another another great night for the pollsters. Yeah, No kidding. But one thing they were quick to agree to in the Democratic leadership uh, was to uh, reinstate uh, or uh, alleviate the cap on state and local tax uh, uh, offsets on your on your taxes, they moved that from ten thousand that Republicans set to eighty thousand now. And by the way, make it retro. As of late last night, they had a new amendment to make it retro to the twenty twenty one tax year. So everybody's going to get a bunch of tax benefit in April if you live in New Jersey or New York <laughs> or California, and or it's Pennsylvania. By the way, Pennsylvania, pick, pick, pick a blue state, Illinois, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, Everybody in those states is going to get a huge tax benefit when they go to file on April 15th of next year. And that just happens to be right before the midterm elections, if you can believe it. Um, So they are. That's why. And Tristan, I know I'm preempting you. I just want to say quickly and then please, please speak up. But that's why. uh, President Manchin and his houseboat and Maserati and the rest, he has actually done us a favor as Democrats. He just needs to stop now but because he has gotten this thing to a point where there's enough but not too much of the human infrastructure and the tax increases 
that were going to really hurt in the suburbs in the midterms are now stood on their head in a lot of places, as you're saying, Towner, with the uh, salt cap being lifted. So I think, Howard, when you say the Democrats moderate, that we have, they have, the package has been moderated. They, they just got to pass the stupid thing. Mark, now. you said this package is enough, but not too much. It is a $2 trillion package. And you yeah. said earlier that inflation is a problem. I mean, but we as, talk about $2 trillion now like it's But you can't nothing. do nothing. I'm quoting Professor French. You can't get elected. You can't control all three cool. branches of the federal government and, and not do anything. Last time I checked, Joe Biden got elected president of the United States, not president of the United States Congress. Legislating and governing are two very different things. And I think part of what's going on here is that we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And it's what we were saying earlier. He's spending his time yeah. trying to pass transformational legislation. Okay. He wants he once kind of identified himself as a transitional president. Then by happenstance, he got the Georgia seats flipped in the in the runoff. Yep. And all of a sudden he became a transformational president. And instead of managing through COVID, he decided to turn himself into the next Franklin Delano Roosevelt and become the new New Deal president. Meanwhile, COVID's back and he screwed up Afghanistan withdrawal. Not that the policy of getting out may have been wrong. The execution was horrible. That's governing. So what's actually yeah. going on here? Not, not one voter on Tuesday night changed parties because of Afghanistan. I 100% disagree. Not specifically because of Afghanistan, there's a competence question. And oh, Afghanistan yeah, was fair. a key element. It was one of the first dominoes in the competence equation to fall. You had Afghanistan plus Delta. And, I, and look, yeah, you own I mean, the problem that's in front of you. 98 Delta, 2% Afghanistan. But the competence it's, thing is what I said earlier. It's People an equation. People elected Joe Biden to calm everything down, to fix the things that were broken, including bridges and roads. But most especially, no COVID, no Biden administration. Uh, Donald Trump uh, still uh, president. So the president. Tristan, jump in. <laughs> so, so here's here's the interesting part. You know, it, it there are I oftentimes equate right now Joe Biden to Jimmy Carter. Of he came interesting, in. Interesting, me too. He he came <laughs> in. Whose side are you on? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Man, you picked up a good Democrat, Mark. You got to have another Democrat on this. This isn't fair. Now it's five. And this is and, and this is and this is coming as a Democrat. I'm, I'm, I'm I I am I believe you. Handle four to one. Five to one is just too much. No, here's 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 my frustration and a, and a lot of voters like me, who want to be committed to our party. We love, we love being Democrats, even though we, if it's, if it, I oftentimes equate being a, being a black millennial in the Democratic Party is like, is like in an always abusive relationship. 
Um, it's, like, it's like I love you, but you're still like sometimes I need I need to leave. I won't. Um, it, Tristan, you know, my, <laughs> this is this is possibly the best run anybody's had on this podcast. Biden Biden made the he made the he made the promise that after four years of the Republicans being split between conservatives. Reagan conservatives and Trump Republicans that I'm going to come in and I'm going to unite our party. I'm going to be the president who can bring progressives and moderates to the table and accomplish something. And the country. And the country. And he has not done that within the party. We cannot even agree on anything. And so for the fact that that gas is $4 right now, <laughs> and for the fact that we are, we're dealing with inflation and we're dealing with all these different things, the voters are frustrated. And so the question is, Nancy Pelosi, who's supposed to be a wizard at counting votes and whipping votes, has failed to do that three times on a bipartisan bill and can't get it across. Everything that people that we've promised as a party and that we're famous for doing, we failed to do. And the Republicans have just rolled right in in the middle of like, you know what? You guys are going to self-destruct yourself. So all we got to do is sit here and talk about, yeah, family values, low taxes, small businesses. We're here for you Listen, and nothing else. I, I as, I, as everybody that listens to this podcast knows, I was for Biden all day, every day and twice on Sunday over Donald Trump. And I am not a Biden hater, but he's not governing. And you know, I think what's been going on in Washington is just a complete distraction, Mark, from from uh, Tristan, as you're saying, from the basis upon which he got elected, which was to calm everything down and yeah. and and right the ship. And it's just not happening. And and that obviously, obviously weighed heavily in the results on Tuesday. No, I don't think that that means half anything necessarily for next year, Julia. Half of the Commonwealth works or is in some way attached to what happens in Washington, D.C. Between the military, so I disagree with Mark on Afghanistan not having an impact on what happened on Tuesday. When you've got Quantico, Fort Belvoir, Little Creek, the Naval um, Station down in Hampton Roads, it was part of it. But between that and the contractors in Northern Virginia, it's all of the things because what they hear on the news and what's happening with Biden is there all day, every day. So it's super easy for it all to kind of mix together and just make them very angry, very angry. And, and, and Virginia proved that they were, I mean, they were very, very angry. You know, there, there are times in Virginia where um, you oftentimes see bipartisanship work or at mm -hmm. least bipartisan voters of bipartisanship work. And, and the perfect example for that and uh, being a history wonk uh, and, and commending, Jerry's Jerry's a perfect example of that. Of like in the middle of the Bush administration, you know, we got Mark Warner and then we got Jerry as AG, and like that, it <laughs> works because they they actually vote on the person. But this time, voters were like, uh, uh, like I just I'm I'm done. <laughs> like I just just straight down and all the way through straight flush. So Mark and Tristan, how do they like? I don't think you can operate from the perspective that the midterms next year are a lost cause. I mean, obviously the conventional wisdom and we share it is that the house is going to flip. The Senate is very much in play, but 
you can't operate from the perspective that you're going to lose. So how do the, and, and look, obviously in the next year, anything, things can happen in the world and they can have an impact, but based on what we know today, how do the D's mark right the ship? Well, it's going to be tough with the headwinds. Granted, Biden's unpopularity has been hard-earned. It's well-deserved. I, I give you that. But you, you also have this phenomenon of the pendulum swinging from election to election every midterm is bad for the party in power. And this one will be too for the party in power. So those headwinds are very serious. You also have a a bigger and longer term phenomenon. You and I have talked about it, Howard, which is people just don't like government. And a lot of what happened Tuesday night was one more election where half the people didn't show up at all because they just don't believe government matters to them. And a little more than half, a little more than half of the half that showed up voted for the other guy because they want to throw the bums out. You have this real degradation of government in the popular opinion going on. But notwithstanding all that, it was close. We're a very divided country. Virginia is a divided commonwealth. Turns out we didn't know New Jersey is a divided state. It was close, and it's not like we have to make up a 10-point deficit. We got to make up a two-point deficit. And I believe the only thing we can do to start building back better is build back better. We got to pass this stupid stuff and we got to move on. I'll add to to that as well, Mark, though, that, you know, people are tired of government, but they're also tired of candidates. And so it's like the 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 fight to campaign is, has gotten harder, because at the end of the day, it's like there the, when you go from President Trump to President Biden or even every other campaign that has, has started since 2016, it's like people are just they're fatigue of campaigns of promises, and then you add to the fact again I still beat this drum as much as I can the fact of someone who was already in the seat trying right. to go back to be governor again. Right. That puts icing on the cake. Like, oh, absolutely not. (laughs) I maintain that they're fatigued by rich, middle-aged men dominating the ticket. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But Jerry, Julia, and and Towner on the Republican side, how do Republicans take what happened on Tuesday and – and repeat it. How do they do that in all these other states? And I'm going to add on to my question. I mean, do we have, um, do the Republicans have the right candidates in place to do so? Because I mean, Glenn Youngkin was a strong pro-business candidate in a very pro-business state, the most pro-business state, arguably in the, according to various rankings in the country, a very pro-business state, regardless of who's in office, regardless of party. Um, But Herschel Walker in Georgia, Donald Trump's chosen candidate for the Senate is not Glenn Youngkin. He's not, Uh he he isn't a, he isn't, he doesn't have the, 
the same resumes. Great football player, by the way. I mean, one of the greatest college football players ever, but I, you get, you get the question. I think it depends on the state. I think it depends on the region of the country as to what candidates you can run. I think the Republican Party to grow has to be willing to nominate people that don't agree with them 100% of the time, that do not carry the banner of every every single section of the Republican Party. I think that's what we have to do in Virginia. We have to allow the Virginians to run as, as business conservatives and nothing more. Uh, and that's what we have to do around the nation in Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, some of those states. But, you know, your more southern states, you got to appeal to the base and, and get the base out or you're not going to win the election. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see, Howard, in Pennsylvania, the answer to your question. Pennsylvania has a Senate seat up and a governorship up. Trump has already come in and endorsed a candidate in each of those races. I'm rooting for his candidates because we will win the governorship and we will win the Senate seat if those two guys, they, they make Herschel Walker look like George Washington, the guy that Trump is not as endorsed in Pennsylvania. But the Republican Party, to Jerry's point, isn't lying down and accepting the Trump endorsement. You have very serious people either in the race against them or thinking of getting in. And we'll we'll see who the party nominates. If the party rejects the Trump endorsed candidates, nominates the very serious, very credible, in one case, very rich alternatives, we're, we're going to be in, in for a real dogfight in Pennsylvania. If they, on the other hand, go with the Trump candidates, thank you. That, thank you. That, that would be much appreciated. Well, and that's that's the point, um, you know, is that Trump has can have influence on high profile races like will take place in the Senate. And I, I personally think there's there's no chance Republicans uh, win the Senate, quite frankly. Um, it's it's a tough road to go. I still think that even in this climate, because Trump can go into primaries in a very public statewide way and mess them up royally. Mm -hmm. uh, Pennsylvania, March is mentioned. North Carolina, he's backing uh, one particular candidate over two others that are probably a little bit more electable. In Arizona, he drove off Governor Ducey, uh, who would have been a shoe in to win that seat back from Mark Kelly uh, for the Republicans. Uh, we'll see what he does in Nevada. There's there's mm -hmm. state after state where Trump is driving away Senate candidates, and but he can't do that in the House as well. He can only pick a few House races and really mess them up, but it's not going to be enough to overcome a groundswell. Uh, you know, Democrats are going to keep pushing forward. And the old adage, I think, holds here. Republicans are the party of no ideas and Democrats are the party of bad ideas. And Democrats want to push bad ideas right now and people don't want them. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, Trump can very well mess up uh, a chance for Republicans to win back the Senate, but he can't he doesn't have enough go around uh, to get into 60 to 70 to 80 House races and mess that up uh, from a grassroots level. Julia, I apologize. Well, I cut you off. No, and, and don't underestimate um, for a state like Virginia, Republicans were tired of losing. Trump, we had a Trump in heels who was running for the nomination um, in the convention for governor, and she was trounced, right? Glenn Youngkin came in. He had never done any party stuff before. He had no real Republican, if you will, party 
street cred and he won a convention, which to us is, I mean, Jerry can vouch for a convention. Winning that as an outsider is unheard of here. But he brought in people who identify with the policies of the party, not necessarily elephant tattoo wearing individuals, but they identify with the, the with the uh, policies. They were willing to get engaged for that election. And look, we wound up with a candidate. And then he did a great job of just distancing himself from the person, not from the principles, not from the individuals, not from deep red Trump Southwest, because he just he ran on the issues. And we were um, quite frankly, you saw Republicans across the Commonwealth who were tired of losing. And so they were like, you know what? He's not 100 percent us. but He's so much better than the other guy. And we want to win. We want to win big. Can't we like switch with Pennsylvania and Virginia and call them a state? Like why Commonwealth <laughs> is such a mouthful. You guys and all have to say Commonwealth. And Kentucky. Uh, and Massachusetts. Massachusetts. I'm sitting uh, in a Commonwealth was, right now. Uh, either Commonwealth or People's Republic, which most other Northeastern states chose. There you go. <laughs> well, this was an awesome discussion, breaking down what happened on Tuesday. I hope everybody enjoyed it. And we, we will be back uh, next week. And Julia, Tristan, Jerry, Mark, Towner, Thanks so much, and we'll be back. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.